Welcome to The Stream, a bi-weekly podcast from myself, Chelsea Frisbee, and my co-host, Anna Janiszewski. We stream our thoughts on mindfulness, mental health, self-care, spirituality, and all the ways that we move through life. And in this episode, we are exploring the topic of identity. Who are we? How do we perceive of ourselves? And how are we supported or not supported by our culture in developing this understanding of ourselves? We go into a zoomed out perspective of existential self and uh, dive into some ways that you can look at your own sense of identity and how that's evolved. Hope you enjoy. Today, we are talking about identity, which we're defining as the way that we conceive of or understand ourselves. So this could be in relationship to others, as identity often is. It might also include uh, memories, values, uh, as well as like a basic sense of essential self or the essence of who we are. So there's lots of layers to identity as we're discussing it today. Yeah, for sure. So we're, we're mentioning these component parts. Those could be, like you say, Chels, memories, values, um, anything really that might be included in the ingredients of what makes up our identity. Uh, but then beyond that, there's the factor of how we're actually conceiving of ourselves, the way that we are looking at ourselves in light of all these things. So on one level, it's a way to say, okay, this is me, this is who I am, or that's you. And we can point to similarities or differences in order to define these things. But then there's that other level. More importantly, I would say it's not just about the facts that we might be able to gather in order to make these these categorizations, these definitions of ourselves. Um, it's more about the way that we interpret them and the way that we weave them together for ourselves. And it's very unlikely, uh, therefore, to be a simple cut and dry collection of qualities or memories or interests. And I was trying to think of an example to illustrate this. And I thought, well, okay, so someone might be considered to be a non-judgmental person, for instance, that could be part of their identity. And maybe they got there because they followed um, a strict daily Buddhist practice of non-judgment for years and meditated a bunch and gained enlightenment uh, and found non-judgmentalism through that. Or maybe it's because their own trauma makes them say immediately, oh, who am I to judge in certain situations? That's their first thought and, and perhaps followed by, I'm probably worse than that. Any number of possibilities there. Um, or maybe if this is someone who considers themselves to be a non-judgmental person, because in fact, they're actually incredibly prone to judging others. It's something that happens instinctively and pretty forcefully for them. And it takes such effort for them to try to work through that. They don't want to be that way that they end up kind of confusing that effort for, um, kind of fundamental, a fundamental characteristic in itself. But the point simply is that it's not just this uh, simple math equation. It's not just a combination of traits that makes us us. And though there are various factors that come into play and all of them are important, I would say again that the most crucial one ultimately is going to be the way that we see ourselves, the way that we're interpreting any of the other factors. Mm, yeah, that's that's a uh, it feels like a critical point as. I guess, again, that sort of those layers and how, how they all interact with each other. But that interpretation of, of ourselves is really kind of what we're, we're looking at. And, you know, um, as I was thinking about why 
why this sense of identity or like why is this important to talk about or consider one thing that came up is just that it's um it feels like having this very basic of understanding of who we are is helpful it allows for more of a like assured navigation through life um, i think especially can be helpful through change which of course is constant um, and I think that if we have this basic awareness of who we are and what resonates with us and what we believe in, or even what our place in the world is, then we can more fully inhabit that place with vibrancy and I think sort of a, moving from a sense of completeness and wholeness. And um, as as we've been thinking about identity the last few days leading up to this show, one of the things that came up for me was um, just kind of my own story around identity in the, the last handful of years, um, which has helped me to, to kind of understand, more fully understand my identity as really being kind of not in relationship to a job or to others or to certain roles or relationships, um, although that's that's obviously like one layer of, of many parts of our identity. Um, but a few years ago, as I've mentioned on the show before, um, my mom passed away and that was a huge identity sort of shifting moment for me. And it took me quite a few years to kind of recalibrate, I think, to this um, just kind of different sense of identity without having her in my life and in the same way. Um, and through a number of other changes that came after that of leaving a job and a partner and uh, a community where I was living, I kind of had like was left with this question of like, wait, who am I without these things that I feel like sort of were parts of my identity for so long. And at first it really felt like kind of like a void and had a lot of discomfort in it. And I was able to kind of lean into that and, um, then it became what felt like an opportunity to really look at my values, to look at what's core to who I am without any of those external um, sort of structures of my life or, or ways to identify in terms of um, those roles. And I don't think that that stripping away is, is necess necessary to be able to, to look at one's kind of core identity or core sense of self, but I... I found it ultimately very helpful, even though I wouldn't have chosen, you know, the, that sort of scenario, um, as a way to, to do that. But it did allow me to really build back, a, a life and sort of the, the identity structures that are more centered around my truth and the essence of who I am and, and kind of that core of identity um and being with I, I guess when i'm talking about this it's sort of i see it as like the self with like a capital s um so that's just been helpful for my my own understanding of like oh here are some of how my own experience with layers of identity has has shifted and changed over the years yeah that's so important talking about those two interrelated aspects of identity there, that core self that you're, that you're getting at. And then the fact that so much of our identity 
is formed in relationship with others. Um, and I think that very often when people do consider identity, especially in this country, it tends to be under the heading of that core self, that individual self, although not many people, I don't think have occasion or, um, or desire to really get at it and, and sort of examine it stripped away and bare in the way that you did partly by choice and partly by circumstance. Um, I think, I think, you know, a lot of the time though, people do come up with that conception of identity much more readily than they would consider identity as being something that, um, to a massive degree does form, like I say, in relationship to other people and to communities. And, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, Chelsea, we, a part of our identity inherently is perhaps as a friend or mother or daughter or boss or employee or partner. Um, and that's largely why we feel such a tremendous sense of loss of self or just existential confusion even when we experience any kind of a loss within a relationship because we're left with the question, well, who am I then if I don't exist within this system any longer? At first, we really don't know. Um, and it can really be that kind of leveling or flooring experience that you're describing, that need to sort of take stock and rebuild. Um, and I think that that in itself ought to be normalized and certainly not pathologized, which again, I think it sometimes is in this country. Um, thinking specifically of the example of partnership, for example, when two people might split up after a significant relationship, or if one of them dies, we often hear people say, they express the feeling that part of them, like a, a, a real part of them is suddenly gone. Um, you know, to be grieving, to be bereft of something that was so crucial in your own identity, especially in this country. I think there's this idea that we need to be totally self-sufficient and to guard against entanglement or enmeshment in relationships precisely in order to avoid that kind of um, what a lot of people would then ultimately call dependence. Because if you take it away and fall over, well, you were dependent on it. But the reality is that we do each have a personal identity that we can always return to and redefine in ourselves. And also there are aspects of our identity that we can really only access or develop in relationship to others through our willingness to engage in that system in which we are no longer me, this discrete unit and you, this discrete unit, but us uh, functioning as a system together and building something that is, um, you know, greater than the sum of its parts in that sense. And that that's a beautiful thing that we're wired to do. We have the capability to do as social creatures to we're built to become these systems with others. Um, even if we're ultimately individuals on one level, I do think it's really important to acknowledge and to really appreciate how deeply relationship shapes us and to allow that to happen, to join forces as it were, and create this larger sense of identity alongside our own personal ones. Um, and relatedly, but a little bit differently, I'm also thinking at the moment of that saying that we've mentioned a couple times in different shows here that, um, sometimes people say that you are basically the combination of the, let's say five people that you interact with most throughout your daily life. Um, 
and we're led to believe that we are these beings who are totally autonomous in our self-development. You know, like I'm saying, we're, we're sort of, um, told we ought to be operating as unique, self-sufficient individuals and thinking and feeling totally for ourselves and our perceptions of and opinions about the world are supposed to be derived only from our own heads and hearts. But we really do need to take in a lot from those around us in order to uh, come up with our ideas, our opinions, our values, all that. And so I think along those lines, it's also just a very good reminder to be sure that the folks that you're spending the most time with are people whose values and interests you really do want to absorb because it will happen whether or not you realize it or, or, um, invite it in. Yeah. I think the, uh, the both and of that, you know, that we are our own individual selves and essences and also existing within this, you know, both smaller circles, but also larger global community, um, feels important to be able to hold both of those as we're talking about identity. And I think that, um, you know, we, we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily support our own individual discovery of who we are at our core, um, or this formation of a deeper sense of, of who we are. Instead, I think there's oftentimes a lot tied up in identity around productivity or careers or materialism and capitalism and um i've just always found it really refreshing to find more of a a kind of a different different path in in this like identity discovery or um maybe not discovery but like reimagining or finding um but i'll just share right now i'm I'm doing this program. It's called the Purpose Discovery Program. It's led by a man named Jonathan Gustin. And it's really around a related question, which is, um, like, what is my deepest, truest, unique purpose in, in life? And um, this kind of delving into deeply understanding who I am is a part of it, but it kind of takes it a step further asking this question of like, what is my singular place in the web of life? Or I really like, um, this line, which is, is from Jonathan Gustin, which is what is the beautiful possibility that I fell so in love with that I decided to be me in this place and time. And I'm sharing this here mostly because it's just like where my thinking is right now around the identity question. Um, and it also, I guess it, for me, it feels like a little bit of like a zooming out from that individual perspective to that larger, like, who am I within, you know, all of the, the rest of the world and, and relationships and interactions. And for me, it's definitely more of like a spiritual, um, sense of, of self and, and essence that, um, is just part of what kind of makes me interested in, in these types of questions. So just wanted to bring some of that in. Nice. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I can see so easily that dual vision or those dual directions of looking inward and looking outward at the same time. And really, um, through a lot of that, I get a much stronger sense of the need to dig inward to really make sure that you're getting in touch with yourself and figuring out, 
what your purpose is, I think is, um, is definitely a, a very direct way to access your identity in the context of the greater community and world for sure. Um, and discovering our purpose, I, I don't think that strays too far from the topic at all, because ultimately it really is about finding our identity through um, perhaps, you know, connecting to our community and the world around us, but also distinguishing ourselves from the masses around us, from the crowd in some way to figure out how we are unique and how what we as individuals have to offer might be um, of substance, of importance, uh, able to offer something to, to other people, hopefully. And that might involve intentional connection with others, with a chosen community, perhaps. But at first, it does require that we uh, examine the circumstances that we more passively have found ourselves in, whether that's a place or community which we're born into, or simply where we find ourselves having drifted at some point in life um, to, to stop and take stock of who we are and, um, and certainly with the tool of asking ourselves what purpose we might serve, um, could be a really exciting process and helpful, I think, to figure that out against that backdrop of what doesn't really serve us or feel quite right if we're, if we've kind of drifted into a certain situation or perhaps, um, you know, we're just born into a certain set of circumstances, we may at some point in our lives stop and look around and look at ourselves and think, well, this doesn't feel quite right. What's going on here? Um, and that can also be incredibly painful. I think a good example I'm thinking of at the moment is I just watched a documentary addressing homelessness the other day, and there was a young trans woman in it who had come out in her senior year of college. And in doing so, and she knew this would be the case, um, or while well, she suspected as much, certainly she lost all of her family support and she wound up homeless. Um, and that of course is such a common experience for so many people in the LGBTQIA community, um, you know, just risking that and, and, uh, losing some sort of community or family ties or support or just the inherent risk of, um, claiming your identity that is an experience that most people don't have that like the uh, the gravity of that and I think it's such a powerful example of the need to pave the way for our own identities and allow ourselves to become more authentically us and I say the need because um, very clearly it's not with no stakes you know uh, it's an easy enough thing to do with aspects of our identity that we know already garner acceptance and praise from our tribe. But then when it becomes a matter of standing up against the beliefs or desires of those around us, whose opinions by now mean so much to us simply by virtue of the fact that they are our tribe, that's really, really tough. Um, more than tough. It's actually quite literally painful to risk rejection from the tribe. We're wired evolutionarily to want to avoid that at almost all costs. Um, rejection, social rejection does light up the same pathways in the brain as physical pain. That's been shown. Um, and people in studies also consistently go against what they know to be true 
just to fit in with the crowd. It's, it's often a much more desirable thing to us to be accepted than to be right even. Um, so it's no small feat at all to raise your hand amongst your own and say, actually, I don't agree. Actually, that's not me. Actually, you've got me wrong. When our identity doesn't mesh with our tribe and, and the pain, finally, the pain of being inauthentic, whether that's an acute pain or this dull ache over years and years that adds up, when that tips the scales and finally outweighs that fear of rejection and that very real pain of being rejected, um, that's such a powerful transitional moment. And I think in some way, on some scale, we should all be seeking those moments, even if it's just little daily ways to gently but firmly push back against that path of least resistance, that desire to be accepted and make sure we're asking ourselves if we're being authentic, if we're maintaining our own integrity and being true to our, what we are finding to be our true identities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you were um, talking about that, I was just thinking about, I guess maybe it's a utopian vision of a world where everyone has permission to be exactly who they are. You know, it's like, it, it makes me think of um, the natural world and how at least my like human understanding of how it works, and maybe it's more complex than this, but like, you know, I see a maple tree and it's like just purely being a maple tree, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's not these like levels of complexity and like societal forces and all these things that like, I think that's part of what makes it really challenging for us to be like our, our unique human <laughs> souls that like, it's really not, not that easy to just grow, grow up as, as who we are. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think that there is something very helpful about uh, even just getting to experience the simplicity of like a maple tree, just being a maple tree. <laughs> You're like, yeah. ah, yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> can can we do that? I, I think it's a good ideal, anyhow. Something <laughs> to something to orient ourselves toward. <laughs> yeah. Um, I came across this quote today that felt also related. Um, and again, this is kind of expanding back into that more spiritual sense of identity or sense of the, like a capital S self. And this is from, uh, Richard Rohr, who's a, a Christian mystic and writer. And he says, our false self, which we might also call our small self is our launching pad, our body image, our job, our education, our clothes, our money, our car, our sexual identity, our success, and so on. These are the trappings of ego that we all use to get us through an ordinary day. They're a nice enough platform to stand on, but they are largely a projection of our self-image and our attachment to it. None of them will last. When we are connected to the whole, capital W, we no longer need to protect or defend the mere part. We are now connected to something inexhaustible. Our false self is what changes, passes, and dies when we die. Only our true self, capital T, capital S, lives forever. Mm. And I just appreciate that. Um, yeah, I guess that more existential question of like, right, who am I now? But then who do I become when I die? <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of belief systems that play there. But um, th that's just, uh, I think, part of the part of the beautiful and complex part of being human. Mm. 
identity, which we've defined as how we conceive of or understand ourselves. And in the second half of the show, we always like to give some practical ideas for um, ways to, to work with the topics that we're talking about. Um, so uh, our quote unquote tips section. Um, and the first one that I wanted to talk about was just this very basic um, spending time by oneself and preferably um, in nature, I found to be super helpful both for myself and for clients that I've worked with. So um, I have a, a coaching and retreats business and I um, it started in the pandemic really just based on you know, the fact that group retreats weren't an option. Um, but I started offering these intentional solo retreat experiences for people, usually women who needed to get away and just kind of be with themselves, um, for a few days. And what I found through that, and then also through my own experience of, of trying to do this for myself, at least once a year is just, um, the kind of an opportunity to let all of those, you know, responsibilities or roles or things that, that take up our brain space throughout the day fall away and just coming back into stillness and into being. And that, that, um, time can be really helpful for this sort of self exploration or even just self understanding of, of like, ah, yes, this is who I am. Um, and even, you know, I think our, our senses of self, our identities change over the years as things come and go in our lives, as, um, you know, we mature and learn more about different parts of ourselves, um, or even just, you know, through different parts of the, the life cycle itself. And it can be really helpful even to just have, have this, um, solo time, intentional time, preferably at least a day or two to be able to kind of have that like check in with like, like, okay, who am I now? You know, like in this moment, I think, especially, you know, as I've worked with parents like that, that sense of self and sense of identity can get so lost and so jumbled in the, the everyday, um, ins and outs of, of parenting and, and caring for others. And this type of reset can be super helpful. So, um, I have made a commitment to myself. This started a few years ago of giving myself a weekend by myself, um, with this sort of intentional time for a retreat once a year. And, um, this year I, or I guess last year I did it just right here locally. It was just like went to a friend's Airbnb. We did a, a little, um, it, I don't remember what it's called when you exchange, like a home exchange sort of. Um, and so it was literally like three miles from my house, but <laughs> it was still that, like, it's just time for being in a way that I found to be really restorative and really helpful for that kind of refresh of like, ah, oh, yes, here I am without, without all of the doing, I can just be. So that's something I highly recommend. And again, it can be as simple as it, it is helpful to have intentions around that. So it doesn't just become, um, you know, kind of a, a fallback into 
being on the phone or watching Netflix, but to, to do this with some, some intention can be super helpful. Um, but it's something that that's always, always accessible. Um, especially if there's, there's a place you can get away to even just for a night. Um, another tip around this that I have is just doing a basic values exercise, uh, which could be with, you know, out loud with someone, um, a friend or a partner or someone that you trust. I often, or I've done this in the past and I give this as, um, a practice for some of my coaching clients that's a journaling exercise. So, you know, really just doing, doing an assessment of what, what do I value? What are, you know, there's also, if you do a quick Google search, there's lots of different values exercises that kind of, um, allow you to go through existing lists. So you don't just have to come up with them on your own or, um, and then you can really be able to prioritize and come out with, you know, a handful of values that are, are foundational to, to who you are. And that, that can be, again, just really helpful, like as that framework or, um, frame of reference for, ah, yes, this, this is me. This, this feels true. This feels like who I am. And then, um, another pretty basic and could take, you know, 10 minutes if, if you wanted it to, it could, could be a little more extensive as well. Um, another, exercise is to do a time audit, which is just really to look, um, bit by bit at your days and your weeks of how you spend your time and how much time you spend doing the various things that you do. Um, and this can just be, uh, enlightening as to, cause then, you know, the, the idea is that you do this just very basic kind of like information gathering of this is how I spend my time. And then that gives you that information to then reflect on, um, Oh, okay. So I spend this many hours of my week exercising and you can then ask the question, you know, does that, does that fit with my values? Is that, um, I feel like it's important to, who I am. And if the question is yes, or if the answer to that question is yes, then wonderful. Like, and if it's not, then there might be an opportunity to shift, uh, something in, in how you spend your time. Yeah. I love all those. Um, and I really appreciate having that time set aside, structured into your year where you take that weekend for yourself. I think that's really important. Um, I think, you know, it really highlights the importance of allowing ourselves to change, I think, in the first place and acknowledging that that's a desirable outcome. You know, it can be there's so much pressure from within and from without to remain constant. I think very often it upsets other people sometimes when we change or we feel like we're supposed to be these ever consistent beings. But of course we ought to change <laughs> as we grow and evolve through our lives. We, we should be becoming somewhat different people and that can be hard to track. Of course, when it's just this little incremental change day by day. And I think getting outside of your own environment, even if it is three miles down the road at someone else's house for a weekend, literally changing your scenery can 
do so much as most people know, if they've ever gone on vacation to give you that immediate fresh perspective and ability to look at yourself with kind of new eyes and be like, Whoa, <laughs> the last time I was in a similar position, I was totally a different person. Um, or perhaps in some ways not, but to be able to see that much more clearly can be such a powerful taking stock kind of practice. Um, my main tip would be around really reflecting on that factor that we've been talking about of the interpretation of these things that form our identities, whether they be values or, um, our memories, events in our lives, relationships, how we interpret all of these things. Um, and as I just said, to a degree, we can think about identity as something essential, something constant, this thing to uncover this thing at our core, but we do of course evolve and change through life and we ought to. Um, and so embracing that and inviting that, I think it's also really important to realize that we also have a lot more ability to change our identities in areas in which they don't serve us well than sometimes we realize we, we have because so much of what we consider to be us is ultimately a subjective thing. And it's ultimately very often, mostly, if not entirely about the stories that we're telling ourselves about who we are. So given all that, I think that a good starting point in any instance in which we want to take stock of who we are is to look more consciously at the stories that we're telling ourselves and to ask ourselves, for example, the question, who are we in this story? Are we the hero, the villain, or the victim? Um, so the next time my tip is the next time you're trying to figure something out, or if you're stuck in a particular story about your life, going over a difficult interaction or situation, um, ask yourself, which of these roles you've positioned yourself in the hero, the villain or the victim. And very often we kind of oscillate between villain and victim and don't realize that we actually can assume the hero position. Um, so much of what we automatically assume to be our identities is often nothing more than other people's voices that are still kind of playing on repeat in our heads. And so it really can help to write down these stories to allow ourselves to see the possibility for change where we might not otherwise have seen any flexibility. We just kind of thought, well, no, that's how it is. Um, because really it's not how it is. We l quite literally can edit our stories to a much greater degree than I think most people understand. And again, I, I think sometimes the biggest hurdle is simply to allow ourselves to change and to invite that and to appreciate that because we do, regardless of whether or not we allow, invite, and appreciate it, we do evolve over time, and we should, and it's not weakness or flimsiness of character to change and grow. Um, I do want to say, certainly, I want to stress the point that, that the life circumstances that we're thrust into without choices and what happens to us in life, I'm not by any means saying that we have the ability, always the power to interpret that in a different way, or that that's, um, you know, sometimes very understandably, that can be a massive insurmountable hurdle, um, and a real, a real limitation in our ability to, to thrive. So by no means am I saying, oh, we all have the power to just reinterpret our lives however we want to. I'm, I'm just saying that 
there is very often a lot of power and possibility in editing our stories to some degree at least. And that, um, you know, there is, a, of course, what happens to us is very, very important, but ultimately how we interpret what happens to us is more important, whether or not we have much flexibility in doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I think that that permission to change permission to evolve, um, is so important too, that, um, it just reminded me of that core piece of Buddhism of impermanence. Mm. It's just like something I come back to over and over again every day. <laughs> I usually forget about it, but, uh, it's very helpful. And, um, being, being able to kind of, yeah, uh, evolve, I think, and update and work with our stories, I think is, is a, almost like a key piece of human, like our ability to, I think definitely have enjoyment in our lives, but also, um, yeah, just a I guess just a key piece of evolving in itself. Um, another, another tip that I wanted to offer is, um, that any type of spiritual practice can be really helpful in this, especially in this, um, the cultivating inquiry into that deeper, like, who am I at my core? What is my essence? Um, whether that's meditation or yoga or song or chanting, um, there's, there's a lot of possibility for depth there. Um, and to that end, I'll just share because it's very relevant here, um, that I'm leading a workshop on spiritual practice on integrating spiritual practice into daily life on this Saturday, uh, which I think is the fifth March 5th here in Roxbury, um, at our friends at play cat skills. Uh, which is a yoga studio just up the road from where we are at WIOX at 1 p.m. So that's on Saturday. And it's um, specifically geared towards this spring energy, which I'm very excited about as we look outside and it's sunny and 37 degrees or something. Um, there's certainly a rising energy and it's it can be helpful to kind of um, use that for these types of practices and these types of, of being in the world. So there's more information on their website at, uh, playcatskills.com if you're interested. Very cool. Very cool. Well, the, um, all the tips that you've given Chelsea are fantastic. And I guess just piggybacking off of one of yours, I would say that for me as well, doing a, a time audit has been really helpful in a somewhat different way than it's played out for you. Um, for me, it's been really helpful to audit my time because we do get so tangled up in these stories that we're telling ourselves about who we are. And a lot of that does come from outside sources, or at least those can confuse us to some degree. Um, so actually just paying attention to and recording the ways in which we use our time, this sort of more black and white way to look at things, the way that we use our time when we're left to our own devices, when we 
when no one else is looking, when there's no one telling us what to do, we don't have any external pressures dictating our path. When all of that subsides, where do we gravitate? What do we find ourselves doing, um, looking at on our phones, you know, uh, listening to what kind of books are we, are we gravitating toward? And for me, that was a huge factor that ultimately compelled me to go back to school for a master's in social work, because I, I identify as someone who cares very deeply about and enjoys a number of things in life. And so last year or couple of years ago, whenever um, this was that I started thinking about the what next, I was toying with a few different ideas and trying to figure out my professional plans for the future. And because I do have very varied interests and passions and values, and they were kind of pulling in different directions to a degree. So I paid really close attention to what I was looking up on my phone, what kinds of articles grabbed my attention if I was doing something else or which audiobooks I kept choosing, what kind of movies I was watching, um, the substance of the conversations I was having that really grabbed me, all that sort of, all that sort of, um, uh, by choice expenditure of time. And ultimately the evidence for me was really overwhelming. It was all this mental health, psychology, neuroscience related stuff. Um, and so the point of that just being that sometimes you are right in front of yourself and you don't even see that necessarily so clearly. Uh, but if you can employ some tricks like this, it does make things a lot clearer and that can be very helpful. Mm. It doesn't mean we can't still be super varied and even sometimes contradictory in our identities. But if trying to make a decision about where to head and what feels like the most authentic self at play in any given situation, that might be quite a revelatory thing to do. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's such a, um, like a very concrete example of how that helped you make a, a decision. And it's funny. Cause as I was thinking, I was like doing a quick audit in my, my head, uh, of what that is for myself of like, what are the things that I, I do when, you know, there's, no one's looking or like, um, what do I gravitate towards? And it's definitely, um, like in the, the like earth connection and like spirituality realm. And I was like, Oh, that kind of mirrors like where our conversation <laughs> often is on this show. Um, but that I think there's a piece around like a permission in that, you know, mm -hmm. that like, I've definitely told myself lots of stories around why, allowing myself to, you know, or like how, how that actually unfolds, um, that, that has been something that's definitely held me, held me back from embracing parts of that. And so I think, um, there's like the awareness of it and then there's, there's like the, the permission and the willingness mm -hmm. to, to let yourself go down that path. Um, thank you so much for listening to the stream. You can find more of our episodes on my website, chelseafrisbee.com slash listen, and I hope you tune in again.